We are in a midwinter series that I've titled Songs of Jesus. There are several songs in the Bible's hymn book, the Book of Psalms, the Psalter, that primarily focus on Jesus. Even though they were written hundreds of years, some a thousand years before Jesus of Nazareth came. In most commentaries on the Psalms, these Christ-focused compositions are called Messianic Psalms, Psalms of the Messiah. I'm simply calling them Songs of Jesus. And uh, I've had the privilege to team in this series with two other brothers, two great preachers, two weeks ago, Matt Megger, as he preached Psalm 2, and then last week, Matt Hancock, as he preached Psalm 22. These brothers served us really well, and uh, I, am, I am so thankful to be following up. I uh, hope that as the cleanup batter, I can, uh, I can do justice. Today I'm focused on Psalm 45. In my estimation, this is probably the most overlooked song of Jesus, and honestly, it's a song that has intimidated me for many years. There's something unspeakably beautiful about it, but it's also filled with very confusing details, details that I think have tripped me up. Even though I've struggled to understand it, many Jewish interpreters from before Jesus and many Jewish interpreters around the time of Jesus believed that this was a messianic psalm forecasting Israel's coming Messiah, the king who would rule forever on earth. In fact, ancient Jewish interpretation is uniform. There is no evidence that anyone ever interpreted this psalm as referring to anyone except Israel's ultimate Messiah. Interesting. Most significantly, the author of Hebrews 1, I'm going to bring this out, understood Psalm 45 to be a song of Jesus. Now, if you're looking at Psalm 45 in your copy of the Bible, it probably has a title under, uh, under the, the Psalm 45 before verse 1, and you might notice that Psalm 45 is a love song. Most scholars say that this is the royal wedding song. So I think it's helpful for us to begin the message thinking just a little bit about love and marriage. Weddings can be beautiful occasions. Throughout my ministry, I think I've been involved in officiating nearly 50. What a privilege. Throughout my life, I've been privileged to attend more than 100 that I can think of. It might be much more than that. Let me encourage you, if you are invited and if you can conscientiously attend, go to as many weddings as possible. Wonderful. Whether it is a wedding that I have attended or that I have officiated, the procession of the bride down the center aisle is increasingly emotional for me. My face is usually beaming with a smile. Chills are usually going up and down my back. And it's very common for tears to be filling my eyes. And this increases as the years go by. 
I've noticed throughout my life that my emotion at that moment is not particularly unusual. In fact, last weekend, I was standing right here. As the groom was standing right here, we had a center aisle, moved the chairs in a different arrangement, had a center aisle. And Scotty just broke down as Kristen and her dad rounded the back and started coming down the aisle, crying. Kristen's eyes were filled with tears. He was weeping as his radiant bride approached him. She was weeping as she approached her groom. And I've witnessed that many, many times. Brides and grooms cry as they approach each other at the front of the aisle. Step back. Why is that so moving? I think it's actually challenging to put into words what makes that moment so emotional. Are we crying because they're so beautifully dressed? They look great, but we're not really focused at all on their attire. Are we crying because the music is just flooding our souls, bringing us to the point of tears? It's not the dress. It's not the music. What's going on there? Here's, here's how you kind of get at the foundation. Why that is such a moving moment. Well, a woman is being given to a man. Hmm. The two are binding themselves together as one for life in promises of covenant-keeping love. They're coming to the moment of commitment, of life entrustment to one another. Hmm. And because what they're experiencing, I think especially if you're a believer and you understand this, this gets more and more deeply moving with time. What they're experiencing is a little parable of human history. All of human history is moving toward a wedding. We hint at it when we sing, Be unto your name. The second verse we sing to Jesus, We are the broken. You are the healer. Jesus, Redeemer, mighty to save. You are the love song we'll sing forever, bowing before you, blessing your name. Every wedding is foreshadowing a coming wedding. With that background, let's read together this love song, this song of the royal wedding. To the choir master, According to Lilies, that would be the tune. It's a mascal or a song of instruction written by the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses of poetry to the king. 
My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. I think that is a powerful statement of divine inspiration that God is moving this poet to write. The poet basically says, I can't contain myself. I have to give expression to this delightful theme. And what's interesting is that I'm not sure that the writer understood what he was writing. I don't think anyone for a few hundred years understood what this song was about. Here's what he writes, what he can't help but write. Verse 2, you're the most handsome of the sons of men. I think the NIV translation captures it really well. The most excellent of men. Grace is poured on your lips. It proves that God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your hand perform awe-inspiring things. That's what it means, teach you awesome deeds. Perform awe-inspiring deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Let's stop there just a minute. Verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever. The poet is not simply saying that the king is sitting on God's throne. That the throne he sits on is a divine throne. He's speaking to the king and he calls the king God. The statement is translated perfectly in the ESV. It's the same in the King James, the New American Standard, the NIV, the NLT, the Christian Standard Bible, especially the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew before Jesus. The king is called God. But then, strangely, in verse 7, God has anointed this king who is God. Hmm. Pick up reading in verse 8, describing the king. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. And at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Since the time of David and Solomon, around 1000 BC, gold from Ophir was legendary for being the finest, the rarest, the most valuable gold in the world. Ancient inscriptions and ancient mines have actually found uh, gold and have found inscriptions that point to gold from this region in Saudi Arabia called Mad Ad Dahab, Mad Ad Dahab, Saudi Arabia. The, the name of that town literally means cradle of gold, and there are extensive ancient mines in it. The queen is described as being um, attended with the finest gold in the world. And with this mention of the queen in verse 9, then the whole 
focus of the song shifts from the king to his queen, his bride. The poet addresses the queen, verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he's your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her dressing room, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she's led to the king, with her bridesmaids following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth, and I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. What a song. I hope that some of you can at least relate to the confusion of it. It's beautiful. It's confusing. The psalm actually follows the movement of an ancient wedding. At an ancient wedding, there would be a betrothal of a man to a woman, and then there would eventually be the procession of the groom. He would take his entourage from his home and go over to the bride's, where she would be preparing herself for the wedding, and she would be attended with her entourage. The groom would bring his entourage to the bride's house, pick up the bride and her entourage, and come back to the groom's house, and that's where the wedding ceremony would be held. And typically, the feast of the wedding, the wedding reception, would last for a week or more in the ancient world. I wish that weddings would last that long. (laughs) They're such lovely celebratory events. In the first 10 verses of this psalm, we get the description of the groom and then the bride who've been betrothed to each other. They're preparing for this day. Then in verses 11 through 13, the groom approaches the bride in her dressing room, the room of her family home. And according to verses uh, 14 and 15, she and her attendants are led back to his palace for the ceremony and celebration. It follows that course. Now, as I pointed out in the reading, the feature of this psalm that must drive our interpretation is verse 6. The king, the groom, is God. And interestingly, according to the next verse, the king who is God is anointed by God. We've got to keep that cryptic detail, that scratch-your-head kind of detail in mind, if we're going to rightly interpret the meaning of this song. Here's how I'd state the main point. The song compels everyone who sings it who reads it, who considers it, to anticipate a coming king of Israel who is anointed by God and himself God, who will embody truth, humility, and justice. 
He will conquer all his enemies, wed his radiant bride, reign on earth, and be eternally praised by all nations. That ties together the five facets of this psalm that I hope to unpack here in a few minutes. The song forces everyone to anticipate a coming king of Israel who's anointed by God and himself God, who will embody truth, humility, and justice, conquer his enemies, wed his radiant bride, reign on earth, and be eternally praised by all nations. Let's work it out. First, Israel's king is the most excellent human. Let me start back a little farther. We don't know exactly who the poet is or the team of poets. We don't even know when it was written. We know it was written by the sons of Korah. That was the temple musician guild in ancient Israel. They composed music all through Israel's history. They were established in David's day, and they even established some psalms that are 500 years after David written in the exile. Some scholars suggest that the song was written for the wedding ceremonies of Israel's kings. But you need to know there's absolutely no evidence for that claim. And it's clear that this description of the king in Psalm 45 doesn't fit any king of Israel until Jesus. The psalm refers to Jesus. I'm going to continue making that case more and more as we go on, but hold that there for right now. Jesus in verse 2 is described as the most handsome. I have no doubt that Jesus is going to be riveting to look on. But this is not merely focused on what he looks like. It's focused on the excellence of his person as a whole. The NIV translation has he's the most excellent person. Old Testament scholar William Van Gemeren explains the term excellent focuses on his royal perfections that pertain to his judicial, administrative, executive, and military duties. He is the human of all humans, the king of all kings. He's the most excellent human. I think it's obvious from the middle of verse 2 when he says, he's the most excellent human. He immediately goes on and says, consider how he talks. It's focused on the excellence of his person as a whole. So I just want to ask a real quick applicational question. Christian, when's the last time you told Jesus how much you loved him, how much you admire him, how much you love his words? I want to recommend that you have a regular habit, even a daily habit, of reading a portion of the Bible, whether it's a paragraph or a chapter or a few chapters, that just compel you to think about the graciousness, the excellence of your king. And don't just read. Respond. Do you, Christian, regularly tell Jesus... I love your word. I love you. Your words are what 
thrill my soul. They're, they're food for my soul. They're the foundation of my soul. They're the hope of my soul. Jesus, I delight in you. Second, according to Psalm 45, Israel's king will conquer every enemy. In verses 3, 4, and 5, the most excellent human is told to strap his sword to his side. Side detail. Did you know that in a wedding processional, each woman is escorted on the man's left side? Do you know why? It's a tradition that goes back to medieval and ancient times because men kept their right hand ready to grab their swords. Interesting. Here in Psalm 45, the mighty king triumphs over every enemy. Verse 4 says, for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. So King Jesus straps on his mighty sword because he cares about truth. He cares about humility. And he cares about doing right, living for what's right. Jesus hates violence for violence's sake. But he loves truth and humility and righteousness so much that he will defend it. So think about the truth about God. There is a God. About creation. We didn't evolve. We were made. We are designed. We exist by God and for God and will give an account to God. The truth about God and creation and the truth about salvation, that there is one way to be reconciled to God. Those truths are so precious. Those truths can lead to eternal flourishing. Those truths are good for people to believe and to be governed by. God's righteous rules that govern honest business ethics, that govern pure sexual ethics, his rules that govern healthy, gracious, honest communication ethics. God's righteous rules can lead to human flourishing. So when there is lying about the truth, and when there is living in unrighteousness, lies about reality and unrighteousness destroy people. They destroy lives. They destroy families. They destroy communities and workplaces and nations. And Jesus loves people. And he is going to gird on his sword. And he is going to, for the cause of truth and humility and righteousness, he is going to do away with every liar and every unrighteous person. Now, church... I have to be this clear 
I wish I didn't have to be. If we read our Bibles, we know this. The church never literally girds on a sword and fights against lies or loose living in any kind of physical violence. Our weapon, according to Scripture, is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. We don't enforce God's rules with the power of government or a police force or imprisonment. Our battle is a battle of truth. It's a message. It's a message about King Jesus. But there is one sobering truth we must share with people. And that is, when Jesus in all his glory returns to earth, Scripture says his word's going to be coming out of his mouth like a sharp sword, and he's going to crush every foe. The name that's written on his thigh on that day will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Israel's king is literally going to conquer every enemy. It's sobering. The third facet of Psalm 45 is that Israel's king is God himself and anointed by God to reign forever on earth. The Messiah is God. For centuries after the song was written, it must have left every reader scratching their heads How can this king be eternal God? Well, verse 7 says that God has anointed him. One scholar, Alec Motier, says that these verses are an unequivocal assertion of the Messiah's deity. That means that the coming king to rule on earth is going to be God. But coupled with verse 7, your God poses an Old Testament enigma. How can, he says, Messiah be both God and a devotee of God? The answer, he says, has to await the New Testament. I think he's right. The confusion remains until Jesus comes and most fully clarifies for the world what God is like. There are hints all through the Old Testament that God is triune. That there is one eternal God existing eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, or the Messenger of the Lord, and the Spirit of the Lord. But it is not until Jesus comes that the nature of God, the triune, the three-in-one nature of God, comes into view most clearly. Jesus of Nazareth is fully human, born as a baby to the Virgin Mary, in a stable in Bethlehem, and yet at the same time, Jesus is God. He eternally existed. All things were created by him and for him. Jesus is an utterly unique person, fully God, fully man. And that's why, as the front of your program has, as the slide has, it's why the writer to the Hebrews quotes Psalm 45, 6 in Hebrews 1. There he's urging suffering Christians to keep trusting Jesus. Even though the fact that they had left their Judaism and embraced Christianity had led to their suffering. He says, don't turn away from Jesus. Why? It's because Jesus isn't merely a man. Jesus isn't some angel. Jesus is God. He's God. 
The writer to the Hebrews says, God called King Jesus God. Oh, I'm getting kind of worked up. This is wonderful stuff. I love it. Let me just step back a little bit. And some of you, some of you might say, whoa, pipe down. <laughs> Every week, I am so thankful that we have people of every age who have not yet committed their lives to Jesus, but are here, they're open to learning about Christianity, they've come with a friend or a family member. If that's you, I want to explain why I'm so worked up. Psalm 45.6 explains why any old religion will not do. You do not need religion. You don't need more spirituality. You don't need to encounter angels. You need to confess that Jesus of Nazareth is God's chosen king to rule forever on earth, and he's God. He is the eternal son of God. And remarkably... Jesus of Nazareth came. He declared himself to be the king who would rule forever on earth. And everyone's like, yep, we like you as king. Take over. Beat Rome. They thought of him as a political deliverer immediately. And what did he do? The king came and said, I've come to give myself as a slave to serve by dying in the place of those who deserve punishment for their rebellion against God. The king of all the world came to be crucified for you. And then he rose again, proving that he could deal with all of sin's guilt. The payment was made in full. And he could deal with death. He had the keys of death. And he could save from death anyone who would come to God by him. Any old religion will not do. You don't need more angels and spirituality. You need Jesus. And you need to confess Jesus as Lord, Jesus as God, become man, crucified for you, risen again, coming to reign as king on this earth. Fourth, Israel's king will reign with his majestically robed queen. This royal song focuses on many facets of the king's glory. It's focused on the excellence of his character and his military strength and his deity, the fact that he's God. And yet the feature that the poet spills the most ink on is his description of the bride. Now, I need to clarify two things, okay? The bride is not a literal woman that was coronated one day in Israel's history as she married Israel's king. If the king is none other than Jesus, then the bride is none other than the church, his people, all the sheep for whom the great shepherd laid down his life. I also need to clarify that our marriage to Jesus, you know, some kids hear that the church is the bride, and they think, 
I don't want to be married to Jesus. I get what they're saying. They're thinking too literally. This is a non-sexual relationship, but our spiritual and forever union with Jesus is actually something that the physical bodily relationship in marriage foreshadows. It is a non-sexual relationship with Jesus, but in marital sexuality, there is a deep oneness of body and soul that is intended by God to foreshadow a coming relational union, a non-sexual relational union. And that coming union will be so thrilling that we will look back on marriage as a powerful picture, but as something that we've left behind because the ultimate reality is better than we could have ever expected. I can't help but read verses 10 through 15 and hear the history of the church. Track with me here. Verse 10, Jesus' bride left her past life. The bride is told in verse 10, forget your people and your father's house. These words indicate that she is a foreigner. And she, like Abraham, had to leave his father's house and his people, or like Ruth had to leave her homeland, she is needing to leave her loyalty to her people, her homeland. And she is needing to switch loyalties to Israel's king. Isn't that a powerful picture of the church? We are people who come from every ethnic background. We've given our primary allegiance to King Jesus. Many of us have left the religion in which our parents raised us. For some of us, we actually, for that decision, faced the desertion of our family when we did. And yet, the beginning of verse 11 describes why we did it. Look at the verse 11, how it starts. It's because Jesus desired us. Earth's crucified and risen king looked at you and wanted you. He died for you. He rose again for you. He wanted to rescue you. He wanted you forever to be with him. And I think all of us would say there was nothing beautiful in me that he saw. But when Jesus looked at you, when he looked at me, he said, I'm going to make that person eternally, gloriously beautiful. He desired us. So we left our past life. Second, Jesus' bride bowed to her king. Verse 11 says, since he's your Lord, bow to him. If verse 10 described repentance, then verse 11 describes faith. Verse 10 described how we left our former lives. Verse 11 describes how we've submitted to Jesus. Paul put it this way. He says, the church, I'm quoting Ephesians 5.24, the church submits to Christ in everything. We yield our allegiance to him. And I say, if you have not bowed your life, submitted your life to Jesus, you don't belong to him, but you can do so today.
He died so that you could be forgiven. He rose again so that you could have eternal life. If you would bow to him, if you would submit your life to him. Verse 12 says that Jesus' bride will be attended by many nations. The richest, those from Tyre will come. I'm not going to focus on this immediately because in just a few minutes I will. But simply put, many nations are going to come to the church and they're going to be part of the bridal entourage. Fourth, Jesus' bride wears beautiful robes. Verse 13 pictures the church in her dressing room with robes interwoven with gold. The first two words emphasize that she's all glorious. The church, all glorious. Does that make you weep with wonder? One day, you and I are going to be presented to the king, our king, without spot or blemish or anything like that. And we're going to be gloriously spotless because Jesus took all of our filthy clothes off of us, all of our sins and stains off of us, and dressed us in his invaluable robe of perfect obedience. The robe we're going to be wearing on that day will be the most valuable robe in all the world. The righteousness of Jesus, the perfect obedience that he credits to our account and by which he changes our lives. Fifth, Jesus' bride will be presented to the king in the palace with exceeding joy. I think this is where the song reaches its climax. There, the bride walks down the aisle. Verse 15, she enters the palace of the king with joy and gladness. Christian, does this coming wedding day thrill you? Do you think of yourself right now as engaged, betrothed? Are you counting down the days till you're going to the chapel and you're going to get married? The last verses of Jude say that on that day that God the Father presents you, the one he's kept from falling away, the one who's able to keep you from falling, God the Father is going to present you to God the Son, and on that day, it will be a day of exceeding joy. That's where we come back to the aisle, isn't it? Exceeding joy. The groom overwhelmed with emotion. The bride weeping as she walks toward him. The exceeding joy of that day should motivate your devotion to Jesus, and it should motivate you, Christian, and me, to repent of any loves in our hearts that are competing with devotion to Jesus. The fifth and final point of the song, Israel's king will be forever worshiped by people of all nations. This was hinted at earlier in verse 12. It comes into full view here at the end of the song. After focusing heavily on the bride, the song comes back with two verses that emphasize how King Jesus is going to 
bring many sons, I think we could say princes and princesses, to glory, people whom he gathered in from every tribe, language, and nation. So, until that great wedding day, we as a church must make disciples of all the nations, right? Every Christian, this is not a work for a select few, every Christian should be involved in this work either as a goer or as a sender. And I am so thankful I speak to our church right now at this point in our history, St. Tri-County. I'm so thankful that over the years, God has increased our financial commitment to get the gospel to all nations. He has continued to deepen our prayer for missions. Matt and Becky were overwhelmed when they were here last week. One of the things they commented on Sunday night and Monday was how so many people here have been praying for them. So thankful. And God has been working, Tri-County, to raise up goers from within our own congregation. I'm so thankful. Praying that God will give us wisdom and strength to be able to send out many in years ahead. I pray that this focus on the nations will never stop until we hear Psalm 45 sung as the royal wedding song. Right now, we are living in the time between our betrothal to Jesus and the grand wedding day. We're longing for what John calls in Revelation 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Tri-County, we're the bride of Christ. This is not the time to be fooling around with other loves. This is the time for the bride to be making herself ready. To be living in a way that displays our devotion to Jesus and that deepens our devotion to our groom. The wedding day is coming. It's going to be the wedding of all weddings. The wedding to which every other wedding has has faintly hinted. And as the song emphasizes, there's going to be joy on that day. Exceeding joy. And one of the ways that you can fan into flame your longing for that day is by reading and studying, even singing Psalm 45. Because that song is in the order of ceremony. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use this love song in our lives. Use it to call many in here who have not submitted to Jesus to bow to him. Because he desires them, he gave his life for them so that they could be forgiven if they'll turn and take refuge in him and swear allegiance to him. God, I pray that you would use this song to keep fueling our devotion to Jesus. To help us to keep putting away from us, confessing sinful desires that compete with our affections for Jesus. I pray that you would use this to keep fueling our devotion until we're presented before him. And Lord, I pray that now, as we sit around Jesus' table 
eating the bread that represents his body broken for us, drinking the juice that represents his blood spilled for us. I pray that we would express our love for our most excellent king. And I pray, God, that we would keep doing this until he returns. Jesus, be glorified as we fix our sight on you now. Amen.